1988, uh, I grew up in the same church my, my whole life, grew up Christian. You know, my, my uh, mom had this kind of, uh, when I was five years old, I like sat at the end of her bed and she was like, I got two options for you. You want to go to a lake of fire or do you want to go spend eternity with Jesus? And I was like, I'll take the latter. So that's how I came to faith because I wanted to not be in the lake of fire. So um, I made a commitment at five years old and then and went to the same church kind of my whole life from like age three to 16. In 1988, a book came out called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988. This guy had done a scholarly work and like all the different numbers and timelines and had put it all together. And he had cracked the code and uh, Jesus was going to return in 1988. And so our small little church bought into this hook line sinker getting after it going after it and i mean we were evangelizing door to door like he's coming back y'all like he's he's coming back and so we went full on and so december 31st 1988 while everyone was yelling five four three two one in new york for the apple to drop we were in our church waiting for a whole other thing and it was like five four three two uh, the pastor gets up and says, um, this is awkward. So I'll see you on Sunday. Uh, and that was it. Like Jesus didn't come back. And, uh, I, I asked my mom because, you know, sometimes as an adult, you kind of create stories in your head that didn't ha- like this literally happened. But she said, you know, what's sad is that people actually put down their animals because they didn't want them to go through all the suffering that was gonna come, which they had read in Revelation, right? And so they were putting down their, so like people really were ready to leave to a point of doing really kind of crazy things. And I think that's interesting, when we read this book, this letter, the same vision has been going on for 2,000 years, and it's this, Jesus come back. Jesus come back. For 2,000 years, people have been suffering as a result of following after Jesus and have had the same kind of thing, like come back. And so everyone's trying to solve the puzzle, figure out the, and they're trying to use this particular letter to kind of solve that. And I I think the problem ends up happening is this. Sometimes we're so busy trying to see how revelation impacts the future, how this letter impacts the future and how instead of how it impacts it today. This letter is for us right now. Now, you have not, you've not been given tomorrow. You've been only given today. And so this letter is relevant in the canon of scripture, just like it is in, all, in the gospels, like anything else, to right now. What will you do with what will you hear in the book of Revelation right now? It's not just about some apocalyptic vision of what will come, could come, but more importantly, what about right now? Now, Eugene Peterson has been so helpful for me in my reading and my studying uh, around this letter. And he says this, and I I think this is just, this is so good. Again, if you're looking to try to dive in a little deeper in the book of Revelation, Eugene Peterson has has a few books that are really, really helpful. But in one of the books called uh, uh, The Hallelujah Banquet, he says this, the book of Revelation is really about the future, But what it says does not satisfy our curiosity or match what we think uh, what we think are obvious things to say. It is not a discourse of future events, but a revelation of their inner meaning. That's important. 
It does not tell us what events are going to take place and the dates of their occurrences. It tells us what the meaning of those events is. It does not provide a timetable of history. It is, and this is important, not a prediction, but a perception. And here's how he describes that. It is, in short, about God as he is right now. It rips the veil off our vision and lets us see what is taking place. Revelation is not just about what's coming, but more importantly, what is happening right now. This book has a dramatic impact on your life and your life in Christ and our lives together right now, today. And I think so many people are trying to get out of here when the spirit of God is saying, no, I want you here. I want you here because I got work for us to do. And he's trying to use this letter to help empower us, to teach us, to train us, to move forward in the gospel of what it means to live this out in the spaces and places that he has called you to today, in me today. Um, And so we start off this letter, you know, uh, in October, David started us off with this letter of, of giving us this view of Jesus. In this view of Jesus, John has this vision of Jesus and and he's terrified because of the holiness and the beauty and the glory of all that he is seeing and experiencing. He falls on his face and Jesus lifts him up and says, I got work for you to do. And this has always been about Jesus. It'll always be about Jesus. And as we move, as we live in today and move into eternity, it will always be about Jesus. Do not forget that. Your society, your culture, your world will tell you it's all this and that and left and right and up and down and they'll try to make you think whatever philosophical things they want to. At the end of the day, it's about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus and Revelation is a letter about Jesus and about the work in which he is doing. But it also is about the Spirit of God and what the Spirit of God is doing. And what we find with these seven churches is is that there's a letter that is kind of going to them, and it says it's going, it's addressed to the spirit of Laodicea, to the spirit of Sardis, and so on and so forth, right? That's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that's both doing really, really beautiful things in the church, right? Those characteristics of them caring, of them loving one another, all these beautiful things. And then also the Spirit of God is bringing conviction. Conviction against the idolatry that they're walking into. Conviction against the way in which they're kind of becoming synchronized with the culture. And the Spirit of God is convincing them. And that is why you see in all the letters both a positive list, which is like, good job. You're doing really great things. You are living in the, and being the hands and feet of Jesus. You're doing that. Good work. Well done. But then there's also a reprimand. Reprimands that are coming in about the way they're compromising, about the way they're not living as Jesus has called and commissioned them to live. And they're going through immense amount of suffering. And he's reprimanding them to stay the course, to do the right thing, to keep going after that. And ultimately, don't give in to the pressures of your culture. The same word that was given to this church, to these churches 2,000 years ago is the same message you need to see and receive today, that I need to see and receive today to live into. 
But what we need to understand, a part of what, a part of as we're going through the book of Revelation and all throughout the Old Testament, and actually scripture on the whole, is that we tend to make these about individual churches, right? Oh, they're doing a good job, they're doing a bad job. They're not, no, no, no. This is about a collective win and a collective loss for these churches. This is a vision, right? If you think about seven, seven is the perfect number. It is the number of completeness. And what, as he's writing this letter, this letter that's being circulated to all these churches, it is a representation of what the church on the whole is going through. What the church on the whole needs to do better and what the church on the whole is doing well. It's giving us a great kind of grand vision of what the church should be and what the church should Resist. This is what it's all about. See, it, Paul is all, all throughout the New Testament, Paul's trying to help these small churches in the same way with these seven churches to kind of get this understanding of what Jesus has actually done. Jesus died, he rose again, he commissioned the idea to become this body. And so Paul's trying to help these churches kind of connect with this idea that you are not separate. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no free, there is no slave, there is no man, there is no woman. We are all one church under the banner of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what that supernatural work that he did made us one. So he says, we're like a body. And here's what he says about the body. And this is, this is important to us, and this is what we're going to be working through today. He says this. In, in, in Corinthians 12, 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. This is what he's saying. When one of us wins, we all win. Like for the church in Revelation, these seven churches, when one of them did something really great, it impacted, it was a celebration of the whole. But when one person loses, everybody loses. Which means this. Your individual sin, my individual sin, it's not just about me. It impacts this local congregation. And not only that, it impacts the church globally. Think about that. Allow your imagination to, to open up and be aware of how the, thing, how the church really is. Your individual secret sin that you think, it affects me. And mine, they affect you. This is what Paul's trying to help the church understand. On the other side, he's trying to say this. Listen, when you do something great, when you're benevolent, when you care for somebody, when you put other people first, we win, right? Because I want to look at you and go, keep winning, bro, because I, this is good news. Like, keep going. So we're both losing all the time and we're winning all the time as the body of Christ. But we have a very myopic view of the church. We have a very myopic view of how, like, if we look at living streams, if we're not careful, we think this is the only church that exists, and it doesn't. There's a greater vision that we're being invited into in this book and all throughout scripture that we are a part of a body of Christ, which means our personal fidelity, it matters. Your personal fidelity, it matters because it impacts all of us. It impacts all of us. There is no such thing as a secret sin. Your sin impacts me and my sin impacts you. We're in this together. But when I win, you win. And when you win, I win. And we win. 
And globally, that's the case. Let your imagination be blown up this morning about the grandeur and the beauty of the body of Christ. Because in Revelations 2.1, before he gets into even addressing these churches, he says this, to the angel, spirit of God, of the church of Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's figurative language, the lampstands, the seven lampstands and the stars is figurative language for the church. But there's a word in there that Jesus does something. Jesus holds them, holds them. Now, as we think about holding something like this, would you agree I'm holding my Bible? Would you agree with that? You can, you can talk out loud, it's cool. Like, would you agree I'm holding my Bible? Oh, thank you so much. Man, you guys are in this. Okay, cool. Um, but that's not what he's talking about here. This is what he's talking about. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven churches. He holds them in his hand. They're one in his hand. You and I are in this. The church down the road is in this. The church around the world is in this. Every tribe, every culture, he holds them. Get that in your mind. He doesn't go like this. I like this church best. It's my church. The rest of those, you gotta figure it out because I don't know where your theology is. You know? No, he goes like this. He holds them. Jesus holds the church, this vision of the unity in which he desires and is commissioning and calling us into for his glory and his honor that many would come to know him. He holds these seven churches, this, this picture of what he's doing for all of us. William Barclay uh, describing this says this, Jesus holds the church, the whole church in his hand. It is not one church which belongs exclusively to Jesus Christ. No single church is the church of Christ. He holds all the churches in his hands for all the churches are his and belong to him. And that's why you see the same address at the end of every one of these letters to the churches. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the what? Church is plural. It's not just this letter isn't just to that one church. It's to all of them. And not just all of them in these seven churches, but all spread out. And now to us, this letter is to all the church. One church that he holds together. Who holds it? Jesus holds it. And why does he hold it? Because he's got something for us to participate in. He's giving us a greater view of this local body and a global body that will make a huge impact in this world. But we continue to live in this very myopic view of the church. And Revelation will not allow it. The scriptures will not allow it. It is giving us a greater vision for who we are as one church. And the reason why we struggle with this so bad is because deep within our system is rooted individualism and division. It's rooted in us. 
And it goes back as far as the Garden of Eden where Satan just wants to tempt each and every one of you because it is the great sin that he created in the heavenly realm as he takes these angels with him who now serve to oppose the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is in our bones. Individualism and division is in our bones. And that's why we struggle to understand the fullness of what it means to be a part of the church as one. You know, my son works for Starbucks, or used to work for Starbucks. How many of you love Starbucks? Just raise your hand if you love Starbucks. Yeah, you guys are like this. And you can put it all the way up, it's cool. Like, right, no, like, people love Starbucks, right? People love Starbucks. So I think Starbucks is probably one of the most, the greatest indications of individualism than any other organization in the world, right? You can go into Starbucks and you can ask for anything. Like, this is a real order that my son did. Somebody came in and ordered this. 48 pumps of frap, 48 pumps of caramel syrup, 2% milk, because you got to, you know, I got to watch. You can't, you know, six added frap chips, extra caramel drizzle, 12 shots, an extra whip, and then you, then you die. That's what you die. Like they are handing you they are handing you a beverage that's going to, mur- it's a death beverage, right? It's going to kill you, and they'll hand it to you. Go ahead, this is what you want. This is what you want. Is this going to kill me? Yes, it will. Okay, but I, that's what you want, so you can have it. You can, you can order whatever you want, right? If you want raisins in your coffee, just, I want raisins in my coffee. And you look around and go, Starbucks, come on, so I want it. So we start applying this. It's funny, and I agree. Until we start realizing it's actually invaded the way we do everything. Do you know there's this philosophy, and I had to look it up, and it's a very old philosophy, but now it's got a new branding, my truth. Oh, my truth. This is my truth. I had to, because I'm old, I actually had to go to the Urban Dictionary and look it up. And this is what it said. It's a pretentious substitute for non-negotiable personal opinion. It's often used by academics This is a convenient phrase for avoiding arguments because people can contradict your opinion, but not your truth. The phrase is often used when speaking to justify a controversial uh, personal stance or action because people are not allowed to argue with your truth. How convenient. This is a real example, and I just want to show you how toxic, this is in the Urban Dictionary as an example, and I want to show you how toxic our culture has become. And if we're not careful, we believe this stuff. Here's the example. I'm leaving my husband. He is a really good, faithful guy and all, but I just don't love him anymore. It was a tough decision, but I have to stand by my truth. This level of individualism has been going on since the beginning of time, and Satan loves it. And honestly, if we're honest, let's just be real right now, we have bought into it. You know how I know that? Because two years ago, this church looked different than it does now. Because people decided to allow individualism to come into the way they saw the ecclesia, the body of Christ, They decided that they didn't like masks. They didn't want a vaccination, non-vaccination, Biden or Trump or you name it. We'll argue over anything. We'll individualize over anything. We We will do whatever we can to put people in whatever box we want and we will throw all kinds of gnarliness towards them because 
It's my individualistic view on this. And it's destroying and grieving the heart of God. It's not the vision he has for us. How confusing to our world. How confusing to our world. What have we become? And we just need to sit in the weight of that. You know, for a thousand years, we had one church, the Holy Catholic Church. If you go back, you're gonna see in the creeds, I know for some of you, you might cringe a little bit, but I wanna tell you this. One Holy Catholic Church, the Apostles' Creed, one Holy Catholic Church, the Nicene Creed, one Holy Catholic Church. This is what that means, a universal church. We are one. We serve one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are one. And then during the Great Schism, we broke off, and so Catholic now in Orthodox. For 500 years, that existed. For 1,500 years of church history, we only had two churches that all affirmed the same view of who Jesus was, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light that no man comes under. And then we, but we divided over some other issues. They divided over other issues. Luther comes in in, 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 in the Reformation, and he, he, he nails his 95 thesis on the wall of the church to go, something's wrong. Like no different than what's happening here with the angels going to, uh, or Jesus through the angel going to the church going, something's wrong. You're not, you're not living, you're not doing what you should be doing. His heart, Luther's heart, was really to bring a great reformation to the church to help her be and live biblically. That was his heart. But what happened next, he would have never thought would happen because right now, as a result of us all getting the scriptures, as all... As a result of this, we now have 45,000 different denominations. Because what we did when we got the scriptures in our hand, because I don't know if you know this, but most of history, people didn't have their own Bible. Somebody read it to them. Most of them couldn't read. So when we got the scriptures, when Withcliffe translated the scriptures and the Gutenberg press started printing these things and handed it to us, instead of it unifying us, we killed each other. We divided over it. Do you know the, one of the bloodiest wars that have ever been fought is called the 30-year war. Eight million people died over 30 years. And you know who those people were? Christians. Protestants and Catholics murdering one another. It got so bad at the end, they didn't even know what they were fighting for, fighting against anymore. How confusing to a world as we profess and as we come to the table and take the elements and profess Jesus as Lord and Savior in a world and going out the doors and killing each other. And it's no different today. Maybe we're not using swords, but we are definitely using social media. We are dividing all over the place. We're murdering each other all over the place. It's as toxic today as it was back then. Maybe there's not dead bodies. People are hurting. Our culture is confused by us. And they just called us out on our crap. Didn't they? Oh, you guys say you're loving. I guess not if you vote for Biden or Trump or, right? Like, they just call this out on our stuff. What are we to do? This is where Jesus is trying to give us this beautiful vision. This beautiful vision of who we are and what we're, this meta vision. 
of what we're supposed to do, who we're supposed to be in this world. And the solution is this. It's a radical call to missional unity, a radical call to missional unity. Jesus sits before his disciples on the night before he's to die. And he goes through a list of things, these beautiful passages. If you read through John, John just does such a beautiful job of helping us understand these words that Jesus is trying to help his disciples, like a, like a father who's about to send his son off to, to college, right? And like he's giving them all this wisdom. And the last thing he says to them before he is betrayed by Judas and dies for the sins of the world is he says this to them. In verse 20 of John 17, my prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who believe in me through their message. See, Jesus in in the beginning of John 17 starts to talk about the unity between Father, Son, and Spirit. There is no division. Love exists because Father, Son, and Spirit exist. That's where love exists, by the way. So when your culture tells you something else, it's not. God's the originator of love. Love exists because there's Trinitarian love and he's talking about the unity between Father, Son, Spirit. Now he's talking about the unity between the disciples and Father, Son, and Spirit. And now he's prophetically saying to you and to me, this massive prophetic vision is this. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who believe in me through their message that all of them, this is you and me, all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am you, that may they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave to me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then, then, then the world will know that you sent me. And that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, listen to this. Listen to Jesus. Feel his heart. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. To see my glory, the glory that you have given to me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus gave us our evangelism strategy. And it's that we would love one another as sacrificially as he's about to go display on the cross, giving his life for those who don't deserve it, for those who rejected him, for those of the culture said didn't matter. Father God, would you allow this church, this global church to be one so that people will see Jesus Our unity is so much bigger than kumbaya and getting along. Our our unity is about people coming to know Jesus. We don't get along with one another because it's the right thing to do. We get along with each other because it's gospel. Because people's souls depend on us being dependent and caring for one another. This is what we're being invited into. This is the greater vision of what it means to be a part of the ecclesia, to what the greater vision of what it means to be a part of a local church is that you are not alone. I am not alone. Living streams is not the end all be all of local churches. I promise you that. 
We are a part of a gigantic body that spans across the world. Millions and billions of people praising the same Jesus together. How silly for us to kill each other. What a mockery to the gospel. Is it hard? Extremely hard. Extremely difficult. Are there differences? Hard differences. And they need to be talked about. But what are we displaying to the world right now? Because I don't know if you feel it in your bones the way I feel it in my bones. But we're in the midst of a reformation. No different than what Luther went through. And what we do today makes a dramatic impact in the way people see Jesus. And the vision that Jesus is giving us is that they may be one so the world will know the love of Christ. Paul says it like this. I love this. Paul says in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. All of us. All of us are one in Christ Jesus. And the beautiful prophetic vision that we find it in Revelation, in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12, says this, and after this, behold, I looked, and a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and peoples and languages standing before the throne of the, before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around with the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and praise and power might be to our God forever and amen. This is the prophetic view of the future that we get to be a part of today. That's when Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get to experience that prophetic view that we saw in Revelation 7 every Sunday, every single day when we worship together, our King of kings and our Lord of lords, because he is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. And we are either participating in what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, a unified body on one mission for his glory or honor, or we're against it. This is the prophetic vision that he's given to you. What is coming, but what you get to experience today, right here, right now. 10 years ago, I started Phoenix One. And I started because I was so overwhelmed by this passage in John 17. It just killed me, it crushed me. I just went, oh my gosh. This is, people can come to know Jesus through the way we love one another? Wow, it captivated me. And at this time, all, these, all the stats on millennials are coming out, how they're disassociating with the local church because we've been a mockery. We say one thing, we do another thing. So they're like, we're done with this. They're actually called the nuns. Greatest generation of all time, largest generation of all time. They're done with the church. And that captivated my heart and I wanted to do something about it. So we started Phoenix One. The goal was to try to get to come together as one to show millennials that we can love one another and we can worship together 
We can disagree well. We can have civil discourse with one another. And so we did that. So I started it for a year. About every other Tuesday, about 1,000 young professionals, millennials would show up from every denomination, 233 churches in the valley, and worship together and learn together. It's beautiful. And then my son got diagnosed with leukemia. A year in, I'm like, are you kidding, God? Are you kidding? I'm moving forward this thing you took. Like, what are you? And so we had a speaker come in town. Again, I'm, I'm worn out. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I'm hurt. I'm, you know, trying my best to live it out authentically amongst these people. And so this speaker we had come out, his name was Bob Goff. And, and I didn't know Bob all that well at the time. He wrote a book later after he came to Phoenix one. But um, and, and so I asked him a simple question. What's one thing you've always wanted to do that no one would let you do? I would ask every speaker that. And not knowing who Bob Goff was, or, I was a dangerous question. Anyway, um, <clears throat> but, but he was like, I always love the idea of like laying on hands of prayer. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And he's like, and I also love crowd surfing. I was like, cool. And so he was like, you, you've been going through some really hard stuff. And I'm like, yeah, super hard. And he was like, what if we crowd surfed you and allowed all these millennials to pray for you? And so halfway through his talk, they pop me up on the front pew and they start crowd surfing me. <laughs> and let me tell you what I heard. Dear God, be with Jeff and his family. Dear God, give him courage. Dear God, comfort him. God, heal his son. God, heal his son. Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, Baptist, Charismatics. One, heaven on earth, the body of Christ coming together to lift up a brother who was hurting. This is the prophetic vision of what our world needs for you and for me. We need to repent. This practical view of missional unity starts with repentance. We need to repent. We need to sacrificially love one another. We need to pray for one another. If we're supposed to love our enemies, what does that mean for a brother and sister in Christ? If somebody professes Jesus as Lord and Savior, he's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes in the Father except through him. The prophetic vision is we're going to worship together in heaven. But what we do today matters. And people are watching us. We need to be in prayer and proximity with one another so we can display the goodness of who Jesus is to our world. We need to be lifting one another up. Even in the midst of our differences, in this room, there are so many differences. But there is one Lord, one God, one baptism that we are called and commissioned to live into. Let us sacrificially love one another so people will come to know Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We know you love us. You're going to continue your work because you are faithful. We just want to join you in what you're doing. We want to join you in the work. We want to join you. Forgive us, Father, for we have sinned. Lead us in the way everlasting. 
Help us to live like your son Jesus. Help us to go to places and spaces that you went. You hung out with people that nobody wanted to hang out with, but you did and you loved them. Teach us, Lord, to love one another sacrificially. To not give in to the pains of our culture, the deceptions of our culture, this my truth nonsense that has invaded believers' minds. Would they invent, would they be captivated by your gospel and live it out amongst one another. We celebrate you today that you are doing a new thing in all of us. For your glory and your honor in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, amen.